Amen. You can be seated. And if you would, go ahead and turn or tap your way to 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's where we're going to be spending a bulk of our time here this morning. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, don't panic, don't worry. We'll have those words up on the screen for you as well, and we'd love to give you a Bible on your way out. Um, having a copy of the scriptures and a modern English translation uh, could be a real game changer, so please do us the honor of giving you a Bible on your way out. As David said, I'm not Ben. Um, we get that a lot. We look a lot alike. Um, my name is Noah, and I grew up in a Christian household. Um, maybe some of you can relate to growing up in a religious environment. I went to church every Sunday, read my Bible, prayed before meals, and because I did all the right things, I always thought I was right with God. That was until in 2011 when my younger sister tragically passed away and I was left in a deep spiral into sin. I spiraled away from God and found myself at rock bottom and it was there that I was finally confronted with my need of a savior. I had always been a sinner. I'd always needed Jesus, but it wasn't until I found myself at that bottom point in my life that it was revealed to me that I finally realized it. And I was just overwhelmed by the goodness and the grace of God. And it left me with this overwhelming sense of, wow, for our God, for our Savior. Today, we're going to be uh, diving into 2 Samuel, talking about King David, who had uh, a similar instance of wow for God. For those of you who don't know, King David was the second king of God's people, the first good one. Saul was pretty bad. Um, he had his highlights, but he wasn't a good king like David was. And so we get this great snapshot into David's life here at the beginning of chapter 7. It says, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. We get this idea right away that God has given David peace, He's also given David great status. I'm sure you can imagine the level of peace that David is experiencing from all his surrounding enemies. David started his life as a poor farmer boy, a shepherd, and at this point in time, he's the king of a unified Israel. But from point A to point B, there's a lot of turmoil. There's a lot of difficulty. Many, many trials were met uh, by David. Yet despite all of that, God has been a provider for peace for David. In the midst of all those trials, uh, he's just constantly protected David and given him what he needs to continue to move on to become this king of Israel. We get this great look into this as Psalm, uh, in Psalm 23 when David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God has given David a peace that uh, just goes beyond our understanding. It doesn't make sense. Imagine the confidence of sitting down at a table prepared for you, surrounded by your enemies. 
That's the last place I want to enjoy a meal is surrounded by people who want to kill me. Imagine the confidence to take the time to microwave your burrito and you're watching it spin while your enemies are pounding down your door trying to come after you. It's crazy. Despite having a life that's crazier and more difficult than most of us could ever imagine, most of us will ever experience, he's found consistent peace in the Lord. And we want to draw a distinction here between peace and rest. David has always found peace in the Lord and a level of security that can only be found in the knowledge that God is with you. But at this point in time, he's finally been given rest from his enemies. Probably for the first time, uh, instead of a peace that's in spite of his situation, God has granted David rest from the things that have threatened him for years. And then on top of peace, we get to see that God has given David great status. We see that in the home that he lives in, this house made of cedar. At the time, cedar wood was kind of a big deal. House of cedar means you've really made it. Now, we all know, modern, thanks to the three little pigs, cedar wood is not the way to go. (laughs) Brick is the goal. If you're messing with straw, I don't know what you're doing. You don't make house out of straw. But at the time, it was a big deal. Not only was it this beautiful cedar home, but it was actually a gift from the king of Tyre. That would be like being newly elected the president of the United States. And then you begin to receive phone calls sitting in the Oval Office congratulating you on becoming president. These phone calls are coming in from prime ministers and presidents from around the world. It'd be like being promoted to partner at your law firm. They start to put your name up on all the signs and all the plaques and all the billboards telling the world that you are now one of them. So here David is, and he's been given peace and rest from all these outside threats that want to take his life. They want to take his kingdom. They want to kill him, and they want to kill his family, and they want to kill his people. And he's enjoying this rest from all of this, from this beautiful home made of cedar. Now, my temptation at this point would be to sit back, take a nap, and order some pizza, throw on some Sunday football. But instead, David's heart is swelling for gratitude for the things around him. He sees them all as gifts from God. I think all of us know who Shaquille O'Neal is, even if you're not a basketball fan. Um, Despite the last name, not a leprechaun, um, least leprechaun dude you'd ever meet. <laughs> Seven foot one center, possibly the greatest center in the history of the NBA. And I watched an interview with him recently talking about his first paycheck. He got this million dollar endorsement deal before he even had been drafted by the NBA. And so he has this million dollars and he knows immediately what to do with it. He goes down to the dealership and buys himself an all black Mercedes Benz that he's always wanted and it totaled about $150,000. And then he didn't stop there. He bought three of them. He bought three all-black Mercedes-Benz, each one totaling about $150,000. So he squeezes into his car and drives off and then goes on to buy some suits and some shoes and some jewelry to get ready for the draft. And he gets a call from his bank manager saying, stop, stop whatever you're doing. You are $80,000 in the hole. You have overdrafted your account, $80,000. Shaq wasn't aware of things like income tax and uh, sales tax, and so he spent a lot more money than he thought he did. And he was telling this in order to warn young athletes against the dangers of frivolous spending, but do you know why he bought three of those cars? One was for him, one was for his mom, and one was for his dad. He said he never would have made it to where he was, entering the NBA, getting this life that he always wanted. He never would have made it 
if it wasn't for the sacrifice of his parents. Shaq experienced immense gratitude. And what do we do when we feel gratitude? We give back. David is so overwhelmed with gratitude that he decides to give back to God by building him a temple. Now at this time, Israel has the Ark of the Covenant, it's the presence of God, but it resides in a tent called the tabernacle. So David sees the disparity between himself and his beautiful cedar house and God living in a tent. He sees this disparity and then on top of this overwhelming gratitude, he decides to glorify God by building him a temple. But here we get this really interesting response from God to David, starting back up in verse five. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God graciously says, thanks, but no thanks. In 1 Chronicles chapter 22, uh, we get some great insight into this as to why God said no. It says, but the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies for his name shall be Solomon and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son and I will be his father and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. So because David is a king of war, he's got blood on his hands, he's unfit to build a temple for God. Instead, that would go on to be David's son Solomon, who would be a king of peace. But we get to see this disconnect between our plans and God's plans. David, as far as we can tell, has all of the right intentions in trying to glorify God, right? His heart is filled with gratitude, and all he wants to do is give back to God but he doesn't consult with God first. I think in our zeal, oftentimes, we get real excited to do something, but we don't really think it through. We don't consult with God first, we just go off and do. That would be like trying to build a house with no construction experience, not consulting the building planner ahead of time. So you throw up a wall here, throw up a wall there, you try your hand at some tiling, throw up a kitchen, do your best for the sewage, you do your best for the HVAC system, and at the end of the day, if you're lucky, you may have something that resembles a house, if you're lucky. But compared to what that master planner had intended, I mean, it's garbage, it's nothing. It's not at all what it was supposed to be. So God says no to David, but instead he gently corrects David. We get this lovely response from God. It'd be like a son talking to his father or his father talking back to his son. He wanted to give his father something and it just wasn't quite the right gift. Aw, you would build me a house? That's so sweet of you. What a great idea, but I have something better planned. I've got a three-year-old son um, who goes to preschool a couple days a week, which means we pretty consistently get this flow of crafts coming into our home. Um, you know, construction paper, pom-poms, glue sticks, the whole nine yards. Thanksgiving's coming up, so we can probably expect one of those like hand-traced turkeys. I think that's a graduation requirement for preschool is the hand-traced turkey. 
but he comes home with these crafts and he's excited to give them to my wife and I. He's so excited to give us this gift because he loves us. He wants to do something for us. God's response to David is similar to that where there's nothing we can offer God um, that he couldn't get himself, right? Those crafts are nice, but not so nice. If I wanted to do a hand-traced turkey, I could do it way better than a (laughs) three-year-old. If my son wants to make me something at home and give it to me, he's using things that I gave him first. There's nothing that he can do for me that I can't do for myself and it already be infinitely better. Compare the Mona Lisa, right? Iconic, legendary painting for some reason, weird, sad, but happy lady. (laughs) Compare it to the mountains. Compare it to God's beautiful nature. The Mona Lisa starts to look a lot like my son's preschool crafts. And praise God that he says no here to David. We're so blessed to have a loving God who requires no repayment for his good gifts. I think we get confused here. We always want to give back, but sometimes it's in a sense to get even. We don't like being in debt to other people. Sometimes it's to earn the kindness of God. And God can demand whatever he wants from us. He has every right to do that. But in his immense grace, he requires no repayment here from David. Even though it was David's idea, he says, no, 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 no. You will not build me a house. There's an important but subtle difference here between my son giving me a craft because he loves me and me serving God because I want God's favor, because I want something from him. But we could never, by any effort, get to God. I think about it like Evil Knievel, trying to jump the Grand Canyon. What a crazy idea. He saw the Grand Canyon and was like, I can do that. That's on my bucket list or something. And so he goes on, he throws his red, white, and blue leather aerodynamic costume, sets up a ramp and just kind of eyeballs it, no protractor in sight, jumps up on his motorcycle that's like way too heavy, right, like all American motorcycle, 10,000 pounds, and then he goes and he tries to jump over the Grand Canyon, giving his best effort, and what does he do? He fails. He can't jump the Grand Canyon. That's crazy. Evil Knievel broke hundreds of bones in pursuit of that stunt and stunts a lot like it. We are so quick to try to do that with God. We have an infinite canyon of distance between us and God because of our sin and our disobedience. And we do our best to try to get to God, but we could never make that gap. We'll always find ourselves falling into the pit. (laughs) I mean, trying to repay God is just hell with extra steps. We try to earn our way to the gifts of God instead of being like David who just received them. David got his security and his satisfaction from God. But we're proud people, and so we're constantly trying to get security and satisfaction for ourselves. We try to do it our own way. Jesus says this about security and satisfaction in Matthew chapter 6 that I think is really insightful. In verse 19 it says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What happens all too often is we want security and we want satisfaction, but we go looking for it in something like money. 
I mean, I'm certainly guilty of trying to secure my life with dollars instead of with God's devotion. Maybe for you, it's not money. It is. It is money. All of you, it's money. But maybe it's not totally money. Maybe it's also family. You've taken this wonderful thing called family that's a gift from God and you've placed it above him. That's just idolatry. You've focused in on the gift and not the giver. Maybe it's not family as a category, but maybe it's a relationship. A significant other like a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe it's a friendship, a key friendship, somebody who you think is really impressive or somebody who takes care of you. That's just all idolatry. So we can't repay God for what he's given us because his gifts, they're insurmountable. And we can't find lasting security or satisfaction on our own because those things only come from God. So what are we supposed to do? God gives us a great answer to that in 2 Samuel as we continue to read in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, in your house, David, in your house, in your kingdom, David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David has been given everything by God. He's been protected relentlessly from his enemies by God. And all he wants to do is give back to God, but God says, no, 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 no. He flips the script and he doubles down on his own goodness. My wife is quick to remind me of the pain that is associated with childbirth and everything she had to endure to give me and my two sons. And it's usually right after I give her a hard time about having to fill up her water bottle. <laughs> now, in my defense, it's this like Stanley water bottle. It's like 64 ounces. And that's not a joke. It takes minutes to fill up, so I'm losing hours of my time a week filling up her water. But I think we can all agree that it's totally fair for her to ask me to fill her water when she's sacrificed so much for me and for my family. I think a lot of us expect our relationship with God to be like that, standing above us, reminding us, hey, every breath, every heartbeat, the entire universe that I keep intact for you, maybe you just give me a little something, something. I'm going to need a little something in return because I'm doing all the work over here. But that isn't it at all. The point isn't that Kalen is bad and God is good. The point is that God is different. When reflecting on everything that he's already done for David, he decides to give even more. He does this by promising to David an eternal throne, an eternal lineage, an eternal kingdom. Gifts that aren't exactly pocket change, certainly not to a king who wants to preserve his legacy. David wants to build God a house. And God says, no, no. I'm gonna build you a house. You don't outgive me. I am the giver. I will build you a house. And then we get this final reply 
from David here in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Compared to what he's going to give to David, everything up to this point, it's just a drop in the bucket. Why? What's in this promise that could make this extraordinary life of David, right? This shepherd turned king and everything between. What could make that extraordinary life, quote, a small thing? Well, for that, let's look at Luke chapter 1 and verse 31. It says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Whether he realized it or not, in this moment, David saw Jesus. David saw Christ, and Jesus is what drove David to his knees in worship of the Lord. Jesus is who left David with an overwhelming sense of wow for his Savior. Jesus, who would go on to live a perfect life and die a sinner's death so that we can be with God. Thanks to Jesus, we don't have to try and evil evil our way to God. Instead, we can simply stand before God, wearing the sacrifice and wearing the righteousness of Jesus. And it's out of this overflowing wow that we actually begin to give back to God, not in an effort to earn God's grace, but the opposite. If you were here with us um, in community groups when we were going through Prodigal God, you may remember a Charles Spurgeon uh, parable about a carrot and a horse. Uh, I'm going to read it for you because I think it really sums up this idea very well. It says, A gardener grows the biggest, greatest carrot he will ever grow. Seeing the thing, because he truly loves the king, he presents his king with the great carrot. The king is touched and responds by giving the gardener a large plot of land. A nobleman who witnesses this event decides, if, I got land, or if he got land for a carrot, imagine what I could get for a horse. So he brought his best horse to the king, and the king merely thanked him for the horse. The nobleman is confused, and so the king explains to him, that gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. This is where our evangelism comes from. I won't shut up about video games and fantasy football and whatever else happens to be uh, what I'm into. I feel bad for the people who I help set up with on Sunday mornings because I like to corner them in the closet to like talk about chess or something. <laughs> How much more should that go for the amazing grace of God? The same goes for serving. That could be something easy like helping out with childcare on Sunday mornings. Easy, not unimportant very important, or it could be that you'll take this wow to the farthest corners of the world. And it's important to see that the Bible teaches this regardless of your personal circumstances. I think it's easy for us to look at King David and say, well, he's a king. I'm not a king. I don't have the means to build a temple. I don't have the means to give back to God the way that he can. Or maybe we look at David and see, well, like, well, his life has finally gotten good. He finally has rest from his enemies, so now he can do it. 
but not me. I've got a lot going on. My life is hard right now. I can't give back to God. It's foolish, and we get to see a great observation from Paul about the Christians in Macedonia in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. These Christians were living in poverty, and not modern poverty, ancient Mesopotamian poverty. These were guys who were broke, broke. They had nothing, and yet they gave in an abundance of joy and a wealth of generosity. They had nothing, but their security and their satisfaction was firmly locked in the kingdom of God. Their treasures were put up in heaven, not on earth. And if you're here this morning and you haven't experienced the wow of God's amazing grace, I want you to know that it's available to you. God is ready, and he's excited to be with you. He's already paved the way. He already paid the cost so that you can be with him. Why? Because he loves you. What was the cost? It was Jesus. The same Jesus that caused David to fall to his knees in worship, saying, everything that I've accomplished, my reign is king and everything between Everything I've accomplished is nothing compared to this Jesus. That Jesus is available to all of us who believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for how you continue to love us regardless of our sin and failure. Thank you for Jesus who died so that we can one day stand before you as brand new, all clean creations. David says this in Psalms, Father. Um, and it sums up so well. Who have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Father, please fill us with wow for you that overflows into the people around us. We love you. Amen. Amen. Now we're going to enter a time of the Lord's Supper. Jesus has uh, commanded us to worship him in a couple of really specific ways that we call ordinances. There's two ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we're going to get to celebrate Lord's Supper today, and we're going to get to celebrate baptism uh, next week. And the early church was warned by Paul not to take this meal in an unworthy manner. And so if you believe the gospel as the Bible teaches and as Hope Church teaches, and you followed uh, the gospel in baptism, then we invite you to this meal. Now, you may be a guest uh, this morning, and there's lots of meals that we have at Hope Church. We have a meal every Monday in our community group, and you're welcome to that. But in this particular case, because Jesus has said so, we just ask that you refrain and pray. Pray about your uh, relationship to God that is available to you at all times. And as we're considering our own hearts, let's pray together uh, and examine our own hearts. That's what Paul uh, commands us to do. That's what God commands us to do. So what we're going to do is the band is going to play a song. I'm going to pray. The band is going to play a song. And just examine your heart before the Lord. Pray to him. Confess sin to him. This, this meal is for sinners. We're agreeing together that we're sinners. That's what uh, that's what really baptism is all about, too, saying that we're dead in our trespasses and sin and being, uh, being raised in Christ. 
And so it's not that we're not sinners. We're just confessing our sin before God. So take a moment to do that and then come up and get the bread and the cup and bring it back to your chairs and we'll all take that together. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your grace. I thank you for the gift that we can't give. I thank you that we don't have to evil can evil our way to you, but that you climb down from heaven to us in the form of Jesus and you die on a cross for our sins. God, I just pray that as we remember what you've done for us on the cross today, that you would help us to confess any sin, that you would help us to have uh, clean hands and a pure heart before you because of what you've already done on the cross and that we would rest in that today. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.